0: Hey Forge family, our last podcast was some weeks ago, so I'm setting about to refresh your engagement with the preamble of the song of uh, of Isaiah, the servant songs of Isaiah number four, to get us ready for Isaiah 53. So in Isaiah 52, verses 13 to 15, we were introduced to the servant's suffering and death. In these verses, Yahweh, the Lord God, is speaking of his servant. Verse 13 says that the servant will act wisely, and the Lord is proclaiming the servant's success. Now, zoom out, Femri. Remember that, that tool where you step back from the text and you get a you get about mm, a thousand feet high above it, and you look in time and you see time spread out before you. Okay, here we are above. This, okay, and we are outside of history, and the success of the servant of God is announced 700 years before the birth of Yeshua, Jesus, in Bethlehem of Judea. Further, God the Father is guaranteeing the outcome for the servant, so much so that the servant will be high lifted up, and greatly exalted. Okay, now let's zoom back in. We're going to come back into verse 14. Okay, the physical brutality poured out on the servant resulted in observers that were horrified. He was bruised, torn, beaten, disfigured, had covered in spit. To such an extent that he no longer appeared to be human. His suffering resulted in blood being drawn, dripped, splattered in awful ways. But here in verse 15, the text points to the servant sprinkling many nations. This is a picture of what the, the high priest did with the blood from the offerings at the altar. You know, it was sprinkled to make a way back to relationship with God. Well, now Yahweh is ready to introduce the reason for the suffering that his servant will endure. Let's pray. Lord of glory, Lord who existed before time and creation, thank you. For your unfolding plan of redemption. Your plan to take away sin and guilt and restore us face-to-face relationship with you. Again, Lord, we say thank you. Amen. Let's read Isaiah 53, verses 1-3. to That's what it says. Who has believed our message? At whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, He was despised, and we did not esteem him. In verse 1, we have to decide here, who is the speaker? Now, is this Isaiah? See, but realize that the speaker is one here uh, of a company of, uh, of observers who had seen the servant's suffering... <clears throat> who despised and rejected him only to discover later that the servant is God incarnate so is the speaker representing a believing remnant that's a good question okay don't know the answer to that all right recall that many of the first converts of the to the risen Jesus were priests some of whom may have well been present in the house of Caiaphas for the court scene of Jesus standing before the high priest. See, we cannot know with surety here in the land of the living, but soon, in the cloud of many witnesses, we will be introduced, we'll greet the speaker here and their redeemed company. but this is now a believing speaker because he was once blinded by the servant's humble appearance, leading to a total misunderstanding of who the servant was. And as a result, you know, the, you know, verse, verse 1 starts with um, this, this thing of um, the question, who has believed our message? And the answer is no one. Here, Isaiah, prophet of Yahweh, is speaking of those who, who later come to faith. He is not tracing events. He's seeing a person, the servant. The reference to the arm of God, the arm of the Lord, speaks of God's power to save, but it is also God's power in Holy Spirit to affect faith in those who respond to the message of the servant who, by revelation of the Spirit, come to belief. In Isaiah 52, verse 15, Gentile kings understood what they never heard before, and Israel did not believe what it heard. Let me say it again. Gentile kings understood what they never heard before, but Israel didn't believe what it heard. So in verse 2, the servant grew up, almost invisible as it were, unknown, so to speak. <clears throat> the term here describes as a suckling, a tender shoot. It's a horticultural term for a tender little sprout that's growing out of a branch or out of a stump. Isaiah 11.1 1 points to the root out of the dead stump of Jesse, who was the father of David. And then that this this suckling, this tender shoot would rise out of parched ground which speaks prophetically of the future state of Israel 700 years before Christ <clears throat> the servant lacked regal bearing, splendor and power in the natural and that was obviously what was desired and expected in Israel David Culver is a a writer who says there was no kingly form, no regal majesty, no royal appearance. What they wanted was a king, but what they got was a carpenter. Unquote. In verse 3, this verse begins with and ends with the word despised. This Hebrew word, which we've seen before, is the result of a whole being. That completely and utterly refuses and rejects something. <clears throat> shunned is, is, is too too flat a term for this. And the servant was both despised and shunned. The servant was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The word for acquainted is yada. In Hebrew, it means to know personally, intimately, from personal experience. This same word describes sexual intercourse. Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore a son. Okay? So here, the servant knew sorrows and griefs. Excuse me. Those sorrows and griefs were real, but they were not his own. As the verse closes, the servant is again despised. Men turned their faces away. This same word was used in polemics against Antiochus Epiphanes. Now he was an emperor in the Seleucid dynasties following the division of the conquered lands of Alexander the Great. Antiochus reigned from Egypt to southern Turkey. Saw the whole eastern, excuse me, yeah, the whole eastern end of the Mediterranean. <clears throat> and he, he uh, uh, coined, he had coins struck with his image. His face on one side and on the obverse side were the words, God manifest, which all by itself was appalling to the Jews. But then when Antiochus Epiphanes came and overran an Israeli army, He sacrificed a pig on the high altar desecrating the temple in Jerusalem. All Israel shuddered at the mention of his name. He was despised as was the servant of Yahweh. And then Verse 3 finishes with this statement of, and we esteemed him not. Well, the word esteemed is an accounting word. It's when you total something up, when you shake it all out, when you when you you come to your conclusion. So you could say we reckoned him as nothing. We ranked him as zero. Let me read to you the words of Alec Motyr from his thoughts on this passage. When all that the human eye saw and the human mind apprehended was added up, the result was zero. With this word, Isaiah completes a diagnosis of our human condition, which he's been unobtrusively pursuing throughout these these three verses. Number one, to see the servant and find no beauty in him reveals the bankruptcy of human emotions. Two, to be one of those who despise and then reject him exposes the misguidedness of the human will. And three, to appraise him and conclude that he's nothing condemns our minds as corrupted by and participants in our sinfulness. Thus, every aspect of human nature is inadequate every avenue along which by nature we might arrive at the truth and respond to god is closed <clears throat> excuse me nothing but divine revelation can make the servant known to us and draw him to him draw us to him Let's read Isaiah 53 verses 4 to 6. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. This new section, this new strophe of poetry, begins with the word, surely, which could rightly be expanded into the phrase, but the truth of the matter is, so let's read, Let's read those first two lines with that. It says, but the truth of the matter is, <clears throat> our griefs he himself bore. The truth of the matter is, our sorrows he carried. <clears throat> See, here we have vivid use of pronouns. Starting at verse 4, we have he and we and our and ourselves. You know, He took upon himself. Our sicknesses, our infirmities, our sorrows, and he carried them. The servant felt the weight of guilt and the consequences of sin as a burden. And we ourselves esteemed the servant as smitten of God, as struck by God. Remember the word, the accounting word, esteemed? That that bottom line, that reckoning, okay? That the one who is struck by God, well, obviously, he deserved it. The afflicted one. See, that word esteem says God did it to the servant because the servant deserved it. So here, we see through the unbelieving eyes and hearts of those who rejected the servant. verse 4 plainly speaks of the servant taking guilt and punishment for sin as a substitutionary capacity, in a substitutionary capacity, to wipe away God's judgment against sin and its consequences. Here, there is vast theological argumentation. divisions and nuances, all of it, largely, to not, not all of it, but most of it is largely to deny and to dilute the truth of the servant's actions. The wording in verse 4 is very like the wording in Leviticus 16 as, as it speaks of the high priest on the day of atonement who takes the sin of all the people of Israel for the whole year. And lays them symbolically on the head of a goat. And sends the sin and the goat away into the wilderness. Obviously, there's great symbolism here. But that's for another day. Verse 5 says, The word, the, the word, is, the word pierced stands out immediately. This is the strongest Hebrew word to describe a violent, painful death. The word crushed is consistently used metaphorically. It's pointing to emotional devastation in the servant's bearing of our sin as our substitute. The word chastening is probably too prosaic, it feels like, uh, to me, it feels like it's pre-King James Version, pre-Latin Vulgate, if you will. Uh, Why don't we just choose the word punishment? Okay, in in which we say, um, by the punishment poured out on him, we gained our well-being. See, there lies here an enigma, a, a, a mystery, Something that just we just go. I don't understand all of this. It really is deep, and it's heightened by the last line. It says, "By his scourging, we are healed." Okay, this word "scourging" is habura, and it's only translated "scourging" in the Old Testament once, right here. The welts tears, the wounds, the blows, the blood produced a finished healing. We are healed. So, is this a spiritual healing, a metaphorical healing? Is this a physical holistic healing? See, the Hebrew here clarifies it immediately. And it does it in a mighty way. Healed in this text, is the Hebrew word Rapha, a word that's intimately tied to Yahweh as healer. Remember, they come up out of, out of Egypt. The Lord says, I am Yahweh Rapha. I am the Lord God who heals you. <clears throat> Physical, emotional, mental, spiritual honor in every sense. Our full brokenness has been healed. In verse 6, the phrase, all of us, sandwiches the phrase, each of us. It's repeated twice. And all of us whose sin and iniquity was laid on the servant are the same all of us who wandered away like sheep. This verse speaks of an unlimited atonement. It does not speak of a universal acceptance of the work of the servant, nor does it speak of a universal salvation. And and at the end of the verse it says, the fall of all that stuff which God caused to be put on the servant on our behalf was a violent, hostile action. God caused all that sin and iniquity and consequences and guilt for all mankind, for all time, to strike down in a violent, hostile action on the servant. T.R. Burks lays out a scene of, quote, many shafts aimed at one common target so that each sin of every sinner would be like a separate wound in the heart of the man of sorrows. <clears throat> now, men may have ordered the crucifixion of Jesus, but only God could cause all sin for all time to strike down on the servant for him to bear as a substitute. All right, Forge family, we will go on And we will go deeper next week, next time. For now, I have an assignment for you. So get a cup of coffee or a hot cup of tea or or whatever you take when you're quiet and alone with the Lord. And I want you to slowly, patiently, um, waiting for the Spirit to touch your heart, I want you to read Isaiah 53, verses 1 to 6. It's a meditative reading. Okay. there may be tears there may be profound gratefulness whatever flows out of that slow wait on the Lord reading is for you and it is for your lost friends and family take what you have take what you've learned and felt and 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 focus that, translate all of that into prayer for those for whom you love and those whom you know who desperately need a Savior, who need an eye-opening revelation of Jesus' work on their behalf. Just pray for them. Love them enough to ask the Father for dreams and encounters that lead them to Jesus. <clears throat> let's pray Lord Jesus thank you for choosing before time began to be the servant to be the one who took all our sin on yourself to make a way back to God the Father thank you that you did it once shouting from the cross it is finished help us Lord to to walk in new life, aware of your sacrifice for us and for those around us. Thank you that the power of sin is broken and you freely offer heaven's resources to keep healing all of life. Freely offering heaven's resources to keep restoring all of life. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Forge family. You're beloved. We'll see you soon.